Good afternoon, and welcome to Spokane Public Radio's Northwest Arts Review, a half hour of the sounds and occasionally sights of the incredibly wide range of art and arts activities available to us here in the inland Northwest and a bit beyond as well. I'm Jim Tavenin, pleased to be your guide on this journey. Today, we'll get a brief lesson in musical improvisation from a young artist who practices that art at the highest level, the Spokane Symphony's recent solo pianist, Charlie Albright. Also, we'll check in with Chris Massini and guest Bethany Taylor of Interpunct Press, get Nathan Weinbender's take on a new film, hear from acclaimed columnist, author, and Washington native Timothy Egan, celebrate the resurrection of a cinema art form with the movie's 101 crew, and close with a bit more of the virtuosity of Charlie Albright. It's all ahead on Northwest Arts Review. Even though he's only in his mid-twenties, pianist Charlie Albright is accomplished on many levels including in the endangered art of improvisation. He came to our Spokane Public Radio studios in the run-up to the opening of the Spokane Symphony season, where he played the third Beethoven piano concerto with the orchestra. Here he is, talking about improvisation and, of course, demonstrating that art. When I improvise, I really want it to be a composition. Like I want it to have a beginning, a middle, and end, a point, and I want... Ideally, you want it to be cohesive, right? And sometimes when you're improvising, you run the risk of just kind of rambling on for mm-hmm. five or 10 or 20 or however many minutes. Um, so a lot of times when I'm performing, uh, a big kind of uh, the overarching kind of structural thing in your head is, uh, in terms of structure, is the time that you have. So do I have 30 minutes to make a piece or is this going to be a two and a half minute long? Mm-hmm. And then that kind of gives you a, a, a framework within to build. And aside from that, I don't really think. It's more of, I wanted to have a beginning, middle, and end, but the, the emotion kind of guides the, the piece. So it's almost like having a big box of Legos where you have thousands of different colors and shapes and sizes, and you can put those together in any way to build basically whatever you want. But you still have the underlying, you know, rudimentary framework to, to work with.
recorded here at Spokane Public Radio, pianist Charlie Albright. Hear him and the Spokane Symphony in the season opening performance on Concert of the Week next Monday evening at 7 on KPBX. I'm Chris Massini with Northwest Arts Review, and I'm here with Bethany Taylor, the operator of Interpunct Press, which is a local letterpress print shop. And Bethany, uh, give us a little introduction. What is Interpunct Press and how to get started? And Sure. So I'm a custom letterpress printmaker here in Spokane, Washington. And um, what I do is I create custom letterpress work for anyone in the greater Spokane area. And that ranges everything from business cards to wedding invitations to show poster prints, um, like concert posters or event posters to custom installation work, really anything that anybody wants made from letterpress printmaking. Um, and I what will... what is letterpress print work for those of us who are unfamiliar? Sure. So um, letterpress printmaking is a kind of relief printmaking. Um, most people are familiar with it as um, sort of a tactile print where letters are pressed into paper. Oftentimes you can feel a little bit of an impression in the paper itself. So you're using actual blocks to run through a press and print in that manner as opposed to a digital print where you're just printing lightly on the surface of the paper and nothing is being pressed into the paper itself. This is a very antique way of printing. Uh, the presses that I used are non-motorized, so I'm hand cranking each press using my strength <laughs> and an actual crank and individual letters that I assemble myself one letter at a time. And the letters themselves are made of wood and lead, so I pull them from an archive. Most of the letters are well over 100 years old. So my archive is quite large. Everything is very heavy and very dusty. Um, walking into my shop is like walking back in time. And then the images that I use are from, again, an antique archive. So some of them are etched in copper, and most of them are carved with my own hands. So I carve in linoleum or wood or pretty much anything that I can possibly get my hands on. So how did you get into letterpress printmaking? Um, I'm from Nashville, Tennessee, and I worked for a very long time at the world-famous Hatch Show Print show poster company, and so they still print all of the posters for the Ryman Auditorium, the mother church of country music, and the home of the Grand Ole Opry. And I worked there for about a half a dozen years as a show poster, printer, and designer, and that's where I learned to letterpress print and to work on these presses because... As you can imagine, it's not like calling a plumber. When something breaks, you can't just look in the phone book or Google it, have somebody come out and fix it. You have to figure it out yourself, and you have to fashion parts or track them down. <laughs> so you mentioned this archive of antique uh, letters and images that you have. How did you acquire such an archive? It's a great question. So it's not easy. Um, it's not easy to find this kind of equipment. It's not easy to move this kind of equipment. Mm -hmm. Often you have to drive long distances and it's very difficult to acquire. Um, it's difficult to house. So when I first moved to the Northwest, I started looking around. I knew that I wanted to build a shop. Um, started asking around and I found a man named Gail Mueller 
who was just outside of town and he was too old to run his shop that he had assembled over the last 50 years called the Millstone Press. Um, And he had assembled this shop, like most shops, it was in the basement. (laughs) And he had built his house around it over the last 50 years, which is a difficulty to say the least. So (laughs) I had to figure out how to get this shop out of his basement and into my new shop. So I turned our two-car garage into my 400-square-foot shop, which is now Interpunct Press, and um, cut out a giant door so that I could fit the presses in, and then got together all of my biggest friends and bribed them with pizza and beer (laughs) and got the biggest trucks I could find and loaded all of this equipment, one drawer of the heaviest lead you could possibly imagine at a time, and one giant press at a time into the back of a giant truck across a muddy, grassy field (laughs) and lots and lots of very steep ramps, and then finally hired a crane company to get the last few pieces out, Mm. and um, it took months, and then finally got the shop all together, and um, after about six months, got it up and running, and that was in late April, so Mm. it is a fresh new shop. Yeah. I'm talking with Bethany Taylor of Interpunct Press, and it's a local letterpress in Spokane. And you are also the recipient of an artist entrepreneurship grant. Tell us about that opportunity and how that came about. Yes, so I am a fellow with the Clark Hewlings Fund, and it's a business accelerator program. And what it's designed to do is to help visual artists to become better business people. Um, Though I studied visual arts for many years and even went to graduate school for printmaking, nowhere along the way did I ever take a business class. Mm -hmm. I was trained in the arts. I was trained to become better in my field. I was trained to become a better printmaker and to produce great prints. But I found myself good at what I was doing with no way to sell that work. I found myself disorganized as a business person and unable to market myself. And um, with that deficit, it became difficult to run a business. Um, What the Clark Hewlings Fund is designed to do is to aid visual artists in becoming better business people because that's something that's necessary. Um, They've trained me over the last two years to become a better business person. And I find myself now better equipped to sell the art that I've become so skilled in making. Yeah, I think that's a really fascinating idea that, you know, you you can go to school for art and you can practice your art and become really proficient at it, whatever it is, whether you're a musician or a visual artist or a writer, and never really learn how to monetize that or make a career out of it. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And um, that, that's been one of the most important components of what the Clark Hewlings Fund has taught us is how to market ourselves across many different platforms. And that's essential to make sure that we make sense to a variety of different audiences. And that's essential to selling our work so that many different groups of people understand us and find our work accessible. And this is a national grant, right? It's not defined by region or um, any particular craft or art. Absolutely. So there are digital artists, woodworkers. I'm a printmaker, and I also write children's books. Mm. Um, And that also 
brings a lot to the community of fellows because we all have these different experiences and we're able to offer to one another these different experiences and like I said successes and failures. I've been talking with Bethany Taylor, the operator of Interpunct Press. She's a letterpress printmaker and artist uh, located here in Spokane. Bethany, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Searching is the story of a father trying to solve his teenage daughter's disappearance using social media. But there's a twist. It's told entirely from the viewpoint of the computer. Nathan Weinbender says it's actually a smarter examination of 21st century technology than it is a mystery. Searching is a big screen story told through our many small screens, weaving together FaceTime and Skype calls, text message conversations, social media posts, YouTube videos, live streams, and security camera footage into what's essentially a very old-fashioned mystery. As our amateur sleuth toggles through multiple windows on his desktop, new clues are dredged up, and what seemed like a fairly straightforward missing persons case becomes something much more complicated. This is hardly a new stylistic conceit. Nacho Vigalando's 2014 thriller Open Windows and the unfriended slasher movies were shot entirely from the POV of webcams, and the precedent was obviously set by the found footage horror boom. But Searching is different from those earlier films because, despite its mystery trappings, it's more of a personal drama about a father who, under the worst possible circumstances, realizes he may not know his daughter at all. First-time feature director Anish Chagnadi opens the film with a cannily edited montage that shows a couple, David, John Cho, and Pam, Sarah Sohn, raising a child. Through a series of Google searches, cell phone videos, candid snapshots, and computer calendar listings, we see Pam succumb to cancer, and both David and Margot, their daughter, continuing on without her. Now a single father, David is a workaholic, and Margot, played by Michelle Law, now a high school junior, has thrown herself into her schoolwork. They're both so busy, in fact, that it's not unusual for them to go a whole day without crossing paths, so it doesn't set off too many alarm bells when David hasn't seen Margot for a full 24 hours. She won't respond to texts, but then David has a realization. It's Friday, and she's at her piano lesson. But a quick call to the piano teacher reveals Margot quit her lessons months ago, and a look at her bank account reveals that she's been depositing the money David has been giving her to pay for them. As he combs through her Facebook friends list and contacts each of them, David realizes that Margot was something of a loner, that the outgoing kid he thought she was may have been a smokescreen for something darker. Enter a stern police detective played by Deborah Messing, convinced that Margot skipped town, and David's stoner brother played by Joseph Lee, who may know more than he lets on. This fairly straightforward mystery grows increasingly complex as more forms of technology are brought into the fold. The old Windows desktop, Margot's live stream history, Google Maps locations, Venmo transactions, drones, and hidden nanny cams. It also gets more preposterous as it chugs along, with red herrings, false alarms, dead ends, and MacGuffins accumulating like pop-up ads littering your computer screen. If you think about the logistics of the plot for more than half a second, you'll realize that getting from point A to point B requires too many characters, including members of several different law enforcement agencies, to jump to way too many hasty conclusions and to overlook crucial pieces of evidence in plain sight. But what works in searching is its very conceit, which uses a mystery plot to explore how we interact with one another in a hyperconnected world. Despite some unbearably hokey TV news footage, searching mostly gets modern-day correspondence just right. 
Shagnati and his co-writer Sev Ohanian cut to the heart of several contemporary anxieties at once, and they go about it in ways that don't feel hectoring or churlish. It's also perceptive about the unexpected consequences of connectivity, how unexpected moments in the investigation go viral, how David becomes the subject of Twitter hashtags and distasteful internet memes, how the case inspires breathless theories by Reddit sleuths. You can interpret the final message of searching in one of two ways. Either it's a horror story about how, by putting our lives in full view on social media, we're all complicit in our own surveillance. Or it's a glass-half-full rumination on technology being a saving grace when used for noble purposes. Regardless of how you come away from it, the film proves that it's built upon the rare stylistic gimmick that, if handled by enterprising filmmakers, could effectively tell many more stories. For Spokane Public Radio, I'm Nathan Weinbender. Nathan Weinbender is the film and music editor for The Inlander and a film critic on Spokane Public Radio's Movies 101, heard each Friday evening at 6.30 on KPBX and Saturday afternoon at 1 on KSFC. And speaking of Movies 101, let's drop in on Dan, Mary Pat, and Nathan from a recent show as they discuss a new hit film that has helped resuscitate a neglected classic film type, the romantic comedy. Let's close with what is a new take on an age-old genre. Judged by nothing else but its title, Crazy Rich Asians would seem to be just what that title implies, a straight-up comic farce about, well, crazy rich Asians. But even though the title is taken directly from its source material, Kevin Kwan's more or less Romana Clay, the first in a trilogy that captures the kind of life lived by Singapore's rich and famous, it's hardly a slap-happy comedy. In fact, one description I read feels fairly accurate. It's Pride and Prejudice meets Gossip Girl. In other words, it's the kind of film that some seven decades ago would have starred the likes of Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn clinking martini glasses and trading clever quips. Constance Wu plays Rachel, an NYU economics professor being wooed by her boyfriend, Nick, played by a hunk named Henry Golding. He invites her to accompany him on a trip home to attend his best friend's wedding. Oh, and in the process, she'll get to meet his family, his ultra-rich family, a fact that surprises Rachel no end, as does the fact that some of his family, but especially Nick's mother, played by international star Michelle Yao, don't approve of her. All through the film, which plays out like a love letter to Singapore itself, the familiar rom-com storyline is on display. Will love win out over familial expectations and pressures? Well, what do you think? Director John M. Chu keeps things moving at a quick pace, never getting into larger questions of class and caste. Seriously, a university professor is hardly a scullery maid. And he benefits from his cast, particularly Wu, Golding, and Yao, but also the two comic relief players, Kin Jong from the Hangover Trilogy and the New York-born rapper Aquafina. Romantic comedies may not be to everyone's tastes, but they don't come more entertaining or more traditional than crazy rich Asians. Well, yeah, this is a throwback to movies that they made all the time in the 40s and 50s, particularly. And back then, they would have been referred to quite Quite reductively, I might add, as a women's picture. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what John M. Chu, the director, is channeling here. And he's known for some of the Step Up movies. He's made a couple of uh, concert films for people like Justin Bieber. So, of course, this film has lots of visual style. It's got amazing costumes, these breathtaking sets. There's a wedding scene here that is like a Cirque du Soleil performance. <laughs> yes. The food in the movie is amazing. So, you're, so it has all of those surface pleasures. And it's also indulging in all of the rom-com conventions you expect. There's even the last-minute dash to the airport and the proclamation of love in the aisles 
of the airplane that's right. sitting coach. on the tarmac. Yes, yeah, of yeah. coach, and everyone's saying, you know, get out of my way. And he says, I'm trying to profess my love here. So you've got all of that stuff going on. But the difference between something like Crazy Rich Asians and really any rom-com we've seen before is, I mean, right in the title, it's an American film with an all-Asian cast. And I found that really refreshing. And this movie, I mean, it is dealing with class, of course, and lots of romantic comedies have dealt with that. But the way that this movie deals with Chinese culture, because class is a very important thing in Chinese culture, the way that it deals with that and what it has to say about Chinese culture and how it dissects the traditionalism of it, because this woman who, as you said, she's no scullery maid, but she is in the eyes of the Michelle and Yao mother Asian character. American. Exactly. She's an immigrant and they look at her much differently and she will never be good enough. Mm-hmm. And she's trying to get over that. And I mean, how could you? I think the way that it examines that sort of thing is actually really moving in the end and kind of radical in a way that I didn't see coming. I mean, I, I think that what this movie actually says in the end is a lot deeper and more meaningful than I thought a movie called Crazy Rich Asians would be. So it's a really fun kind of romp. There's like a makeover montage and a shopping mm-hmm, montage mm-hmm, and all that stuff. Course. So you, you have to have all those things. But I think it goes a lot deeper than that. And so, yeah, I was surprised how much I liked this. Well, and there's ultimately a sweetness about this. I mean, Absolutely. in the relationships among the different people. The surprise to me was Aquafina mm-hmm. because I thought, oh, is she going to be able to carry this up? And, and she was in Ocean's Eight. She was right, one of the right. but, thieves. But so I, you're right. So I think that we had some preview of her talents in that regard. I was concerned initially, is this going to be some weird voyeuristic thing that we're going to be watching these people as though they're in a fishbowl? And it doesn't play out that way in any respect. So Crazy Rich Asians, it does benefit from its setting. There were probably some inside references that I might not have perceived completely, but it works and it works really well. And it's visually stunning from the appearance of the individuals to the (laughs) sort of wealth that's on display. And Singapore itself, Dan, as you point out, is certainly showcased in a way that we don't often see. It, it, no. Singapore usually shows up in it's these- It's like crime movies or right, something. Right, in these yeah. thriller kind of movies, mm-hmm. and we get a three-second mm-hmm. glimpse right. of a couple of buildings. But mm-hmm. yeah, so we're immersed in what's going yeah. on. Yeah, yeah, and this production is steeped in irony. It's interesting that this film is being embraced so much by the American film-going public because- Americans are the outsiders here. Mm -hmm. The Americans are the ones who we've always looked down on other people, immigrants and so forth, and we're all of a sudden the immigrants. They don't make a big deal of that, but it's right there at the heart of this film. And I was totally taken aback and totally shocked by Crazy Rich Asians, how much I liked the film and how much it is not this weird, strange comedy. It's an old-fashioned love story. And honestly, it's refreshing. You know, there have been all these think pieces written about the return of the romantic comedy, and that is true to a degree. It was just really refreshing to see a film that was just earnest in the face of its conventions. Well, and I think it it knew that it had enough energy to carry it out. Keep in mind that it's playing out against the backdrop of the Meghan Markle Prince Harry wedding as Mm -hmm. well. And so I think that people were primed to look at something such as this in contrast to other things that are happening, serious things that are happening and so Mm -hmm. forth. And I think that that got some people, including myself, ready (laughs) to embrace what's happening in this particular film. And this guy, Henry Golding, is a real fine. I won't be surprised if he doesn't become a major star. Mm -hmm. 
Washington State native Timothy Egan is an opinion columnist for the New York Times and an award-winning author of eight books, including Short Nights of the Shadow Catcher, a study of the life of American photographer Edward Curtis. Fern Wyndham talked with Tim Egan about Edward Curtis, whose 150th birth anniversary is celebrated this year. Tim, what made you pick Edward Curtis for one of your historical biographies? Well, first of all, one of the reasons there's a lot about Curtis right now, and especially this year, is this year is the sesquicentennial of his birth, um, 150 years ago, 1868. Remember, Curtis saw almost half of the United States history. I mean, he was born in 1868, just near the end of the Civil War, and died in 1952. So he saw just an extraordinary amount of change in the United States in that in that long life. Um, I, you know, I'm a Pacific Northwesterner, born in Seattle, raised in Spokane. Uh, I'm always looking for stories that are somewhat untold in our Native West. And, you know, I, like a lot of Northwesterners, Curtis was sort of a background figure. I mean, I'd seen the pictures my whole life. I've walked through Pioneer Square on the way to Mariner or Seahawk games, and you go by the gallery and look at these amazing pictures. But I, I never really looked at the life or the man behind those pictures. And then I started to dive in at the University of Washington at their special archives um, section, and I just realized there's a there's a fantastic story here about an artist, about the first people, the Native people who've lived here so much longer than any other folks who came here or so much longer than before anyone came here, um, and a person who was ahead of his time in trying to bring those faces to us, but is now subject of, to some, I think, um, somewhat unfair revisionism as well. Timothy Egan will speak tonight at the Northwest Museum of Arts and Culture. That event is sold out. And we'll go out with pianist Charlie Albright again, recorded here at Spokane Public Radio, playing a unique take on the music of Mozart by contemporary composer and virtuoso pianist Arkady Volodos. for listening to Northwest Arts Review. I'm Jim Tavenin. We had help today from Vern Wyndham, Chris Massini, and Nathan Weinbender, and special guests Charlie Albright, Bethany Taylor, and Timothy Egan. We welcome your comments. Send them along to kpbx at kpbx.org or call our listener comment line, 509-232-6904. And join us again next week for another edition of Northwest Arts Review.